With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What you call the game can sometimes be used as a litmus test for how authentic, genuine, and passionate your fandom really is. I call it soccer. But soccer is a trigger word. I'll be honest. I love that the word soccer triggers people. I love that it makes some cringe. It makes me want to use it even more. Soccer is the name of the game. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the power of the word soccer. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy is going to be talking about the death of romance from beloved Barcelona. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment. We'll talk about Bielsa and the U.S. Women's National Team and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy? I am good. Uh, you know, Alexi, I know we teach our kids that honesty is the best policy, but there are situations well, don't where don't speak for me and my wife, but okay, yes. In general, are, that's what... There are what, situations uh, where it's better to lie. And I'll give you an example. <laughs> I, I did not watch your Minnesota show, but I asked lots of people about it. Most of them were smart enough to say, ah, it was all right. right. There were a couple of idiots who said, fantastic, <laughs> that John Strong, man, the chemistry between him and Alexi, woof. Buddy, uh, we missed you. I love John Strong, and it was wonderful. We had a great trip to uh, to Minnesota, and the, what they got going over there with the uh, with the stadium and the culture is is pretty phenomenal. And it was wonderful, but I missed. I mean, this is the this is the original, and I'm glad to be back here. So. Uh, now, as as always, well, not as always, but certainly of late, we've been talking about this uh, Game of Thrones. I, it's it's ubiquitous uh, from a business standpoint. That's wonderful. This is what you want. You want the, the zeitgeist, and you want to be culturally everywhere that you go. Everybody's talking about it. I cannot escape it. You, I don't need. Do you have? Do you have a, is there a word for the Game of Throners? Throners? Do you call them Throners or anything like that? Is there anything like that? No. Well, this should be. So I'm going to call you guys Throners. You throners will not shut the f up, okay? And I'm not one of those being all cooler than school and uh, anti, anti-hip anti and and I don't like it or anything like that. As I've told you, I'm, I'm going to watch it, but not until it's done. But I just, I can't escape it. It has permeated and invaded everything that we do. Was this week's episode... Uh, was it good? Uh, are you okay with this going forward? Because we know over the last couple of weeks you've been a little shaky as to what's happened. Well, first off, let me address something that's been a big debate in the Twitter sphere the last 48 hours. Big thumbs down for me on the Arlo White minute-long Game of Thrones opening for the Newcastle-Liverpool match. Uh, I thought that was you cheesy, the cringeworthy. That was, that was too much. Arlo, I mean, come on, man. That was <laughs> uh, so not a fan. Um, but why are you being so cynical? I mean, why can't you why can't you celebrate something that much of the world is celebrating? And I know I just came off uh, being a little cynical <laughs> myself. But when Arlo White, our friend over there, certainly uh, my brethren, when it comes to the mutant gene, goes and uses something that is that uh, that is infected society and that everybody's talking about and uses it in the context of broadcasting a game, you just think that that was a bridge too far, too much. 
it was just too long. It went on forever. If it was like a comment or two, it was like 45 seconds. You're like, oh, wow, he's still going here. I mean, it was... Got it. So you weren't necessarily concerned with what he did. It was quality over, over quantity. You yes, wanted a little yes. bit less, less quantity and, yes. and more quality. Uh, but listen, as far as the episode itself, this was episode four. So four down, two to go. Two to go. I've enjoyed every one of these episodes, but I've come to realize uh, Game of Thrones has different elements to it, and people like it for different reasons. Mm. So the two episodes before it was the big battle, and that was actually the episode that I could pick more nits at and that I found tedious at times and found myself looking at the clock and being like, wow, 40 more minutes of this, okay. When on the other hand, the episodes that are about <laughs> relationships and, and character development and, and political scheming and strategizing, those move for me, and I don't mind those. And while there are others like Alex Dowd and Chris Blomberg that, that I guess find those boring. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like to each his own. But overall, I think very pleased with these four episodes and very excited for the two to come. Well, I know that you're a, a notorious nitpicker, so that that you are still on board and positive about the way that this is finishing up uh, provides uh, hope for me when I finally do start watching it. And look, if you watch it out there, go ahead. If it, it, Obviously, it has resonated and people are enjoying it, enjoying it out there. So knock yourselves out. Have at it. Uh, Mossy, anything else uh, before we uh, light this candle? Nope. All right, let's do it. As always, you know, we kick off the pod each and every week with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. What's in a name? Well, when it comes to the beautiful game, it seems quite a lot. In our ongoing American pursuit of credibility and validation, what you call the game can sometimes be used as a litmus test for how authentic, genuine, and passionate your fandom really is. I call it soccer. I grew up calling it soccer, whether playing on the dirt fields in Athens, Greece, or the converted baseball fields in Detroit, Michigan. But soccer is a trigger word. It remains a dog whistle signaling to some that you're a poser, a wannabe, and not a true connoisseur of the game. Putting aside the irony of the word soccer actually coming from England, to many, home and abroad, its use immediately signals a plastic, contrived, and shallow, Americanized version of fandom. So it would be easy and understandable to capitulate and abandon soccer for the F word. To get rid of this nagging colloquialism that can act as a barrier and warp perception. But I'll be honest, I love that the word soccer triggers people. I love that it makes some cringe. It makes me want to use it even more. It's ours. It's part of our history. And I'm not giving it up. Now, I don't care what you call it. But if you didn't grow up calling it the F word, and you felt compelled and pressured or shamed into doing so in some misguided belief that it somehow makes you more educated, worldly, and authentic? Well, it doesn't. No one can define you or attach worth based on what you call the beautiful game. Soccer is the name of the game. Long live soccer. All right, Mossy, there's my State of the Union for uh, this week. It's, uh, it's an evergreen. It is a uh, low-hanging fruit. It is something that uh, we talk about on a consistent basis. Does it bother you when people use the word soccer? And I guess we could we could extrapolate that out and say cleats or field or any other of these things that we that we use that sometimes are those triggers and are those things that make people cringe. 
this feels like a companion piece to your previous monologue about American soccer fans being more sophisticated. This whole topic of fandom and authenticity, mm-hmm. you're very much on that tip these days. Uh, I agree with you 100%. I think I say football and I use some of these other British terms. I'll probably use them on this podcast, but I certainly have no issue with you saying soccer. This notion that seeped into people's minds in this country that the British way of saying something is the correct way, whether it's pitch or nil, is ridiculous. I've joked on this pod that I have to bounce back and forth when I write for Rob Stone and yep. Kate Abdo, but it should be that way. There are different ways of saying stuff, and they should each go with whatever feels more comfortable coming out of their mouth. But when you went on your trip, uh, your extraordinary trip to, uh, to England last year, was it last year or earlier this year? Was it, uh, uh, it was a few months ago. A few yeah, months December. ago. Did you find yourself using the uh, accepted words over there when you were talking? But did you say football when you were talking to people in the pubs as opposed to the bars? I did, yeah. It's an interesting question as to how much you should adapt to the environment you're in. I mean, I was going to ask you about this. Kyle Martino on NBC is very much gone the way of using the English terms. The one that always gets me is he refers to the commentator's booth as the gantry. Sure. And I'm of two minds on that. I mean, it's American television, but you are covering the English League. You're surrounded by English people. If you were in Kyle's shoes, how would you approach that? As you know, or may not know. No, you know. Anybody, Everybody that's listening right now knows. I, I, I can be combative, uh, and I enjoy being combative in, in, in a good sense. So I would not. I completely understand why Kyle does it. And it, sometimes it is the path of least resistance. And I think, look, I'm not going to speak for Kyle, but I think he would argue or at least submit that it's a form of expression that recognizes the fact that he is coming to it as almost a, a guest. And I think it's, it's, uh, it honors what they are trying to do. And specifically, the way that NBC has tried to broadcast and done a really, really good job has been much more historically accurate, I guess it would be, and much more of a template that traditionally exists. And so it's, it's no surprise. Was he, was he told to do that or did he do it himself? I don't know. Either way, I think it would be interesting to, uh, to talk to him about it because, as I said, I think it, and, and as I said in my State of the Union, at times it becomes a barrier. And you want to have a conversation with the least amount of barriers as possible. And if somebody is hung up on that, then you might have a completely, if Kyle's talking, for example, and he says soccer, boom, automatically that triggers all of these things to some people that are listening, and they may miss out. You might be telling them the, the key to a good life, the, the cure to all the diseases out there, but they're still hung up on the fact that you said soccer, and then everything else that you say, and you're right, this is a companion piece to what happened last week, and the amount of, of people on Twitter is not, it is, it is an echo chamber and it is not the best focus group. But I was interested to see the amount of people that immediately went to, well, you called it soccer. And so that anything that you said after that was completely <laughs> dismissed. And, and that's a real, I don't know if it's a problem, but it's a reality of the world that we live in. And so if you're a Kyle Martino or something like that, and you want credibility, and you want to be viewed and given yourself the best chance to succeed, I completely understand why he or anybody else in that position would do that. Now, when Bob Bradley was the Swansea manager, he was mocked for saying road and PKs. And since then, he's really doubled down on the football. He said it before, but boy, he really leans into it now. Uh, Does it bother you that Bob Bradley says football? Do you think Bob is too hung up on sounding authentic? That he did it in the lion's jaws, shall we say, over in England, I thought was great. 
which makes it even more baffling that we come back here where there is a, a le less of a problem for using a word like soccer. And yet, as you said, you're absolutely right. He is adamant about calling, calling it football. As I said in my State of the Union, I, I don't care what you call it. You can call it anything that you want. What I do find interesting and what I do care about is if in this world that we live in, you have been shamed into changing and, I, and, and, you're, and you're doing it because you have this, once again, this delusional type of belief that it's going to make you appear more relevant, more authentic. What you're doing is you're pandering. And I would no more want someone to stop saying soccer than I would want someone who was raised saying football to stop saying football. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to change uh, for, because somebody says, well, you're not really a soccer fan or you're not really a football fan, however they, however they would say it, because you're not using the, uh, the right language. And so when Bob says it, it is interesting because when Bob Bradley says it, in a way he's doing what I would do, where saying it, he knows that that gets people's goat. He knows that I'm sitting on the other side saying, why is he calling it football? <laughs> and, and, and in a certain way also, he's going to die on that hill, which is great. I love it. I, 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 so I don't know if I love it or I don't love it when it comes down to Bob Bradley. I get what he's doing, but I don't necessarily yet know why he is doing it. But there might be, be a method to his madness. It's funny. I remember when you first started at Fox, uh, one day they needed you to like tape like a promo for a game or something and the script included the word Darby and you said Derby and the producer that day said well can we tape it again and this time can you say Darby <laughs> and I remember you weren't thrilled about it but you went ahead and did it just to be agreeable and I was in the control room that day and I joked uh, what's next he's going to say schedule and controversy <laughs> but you know it's funny it, it's not even just different words sometimes it's a pronunciation, sure, pronunciation. yeah whether it's it's premiere or premiere or you know it's it's funny that people get hung up on that as well and it's interesting that <laughs> in your job writing for different people that have different backgrounds you have to change words uh, change words here or there should it matter no it doesn't but we all know the words that you use in life they come with baggage with baggage and I, I i tell my kids all the time it's how you say something can be as important as what you say because how you say something can be the well the the doorway in we're talking about barriers the doorway in for somebody then taking what you say and bringing it on and using it as a way to get them to understand what you're saying in the opposite way it can be that barrier it can shut it down immediately and i was just really really interested where i was saying something about american soccer fans out there and the american soccer culture and how because of this unique background and history that we have, it has made us and forced us many times to have to go out there and to find the information. And therefore, in doing so, I think has made it, and it's just my personal opinion, uh, one of the most interesting and educated type of fan bases uh, that is out there. But you know, all of these, all of these words that we use, and it's going to change. We we talk about the, the the naming of teams and the FC versus the SC out there, and 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 once again, I get it from a global perspective and a marketing and a business perspective out there why teams like to do it. But and it, and and maybe it's just me. Maybe it just rubs me the wrong way. And I know I'm an older person. I've been around a long time, and I've seen the way that this soccer culture has evolved, and I've seen the the good impact that all of these other leagues and cultures have had on the uh, on american soccer and maybe i just i don't want to lose that initial identity that we have had as 
often as it is sometimes maligned, I do think that there is a power to it, and I, and I, hold, I hold tight to it. So I will continue to say soccer. It doesn't mean I have, can't have a conversation with you or anybody else that call it football or calcio or prodosfero or what do we call it uh, other places? Voidball or, uh, you know, all these different uh, Brazil, futebol. Futebol, okay. All that. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter what you call it. it it's still the same game. But in our world and in our conversations and in our debates that we have, sometimes it does matter what you call it uh, to many people, unfortunately. All right, long live soccer. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer to Bundesliga to international friendlies and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again for uh, Mossy makes the case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? Uh, my case is that if a documentary is made about Barcelona's 2018-19 season, it should be called Take the Ball, Pass to Messi. Now, nobody is that much of a romantic purist that they would complain about a 3-0 win in a Champions League semifinal. But Barcelona are about the only club where the manner in which that result was achieved is at least a point of discussion. And it was rather fitting that on the week that Xavi announced his retirement, Barcelona defeated Liverpool by employing the least tiki-taka approach I can ever recall them employing in a big game. And it made me think back to when Spain was eliminated in the group stage of the 2014 World Cup, essentially ending their golden age. Uh, there was a great line uttered by this Spanish columnist, I really like, Alfredo Relano. He said, this whole thing lasted as long as Xavi did. In other words, as soon as he deteriorated as a player, it was never the same. And in the case of Barcelona, uh, ever since Xavi faded and then ultimately left, they've been gradually weaning themselves off the tiki-taka approach. If you've watched them play in recent years with a trained eye, you could notice a difference, but it was never more stark than this past Wednesday. Barcelona at home for large portions of that game played counter-attacking football, relinquishing possession of the ball. It was jarring to watch. Now, it worked, and they don't have to apologize for it, but I do think for now this notion that Barcelona still represents some ideal about the right way to play the game needs to be shelved. And the other thing that needs to be shelved is this notion. Uh, it was true early in his career, particularly when Pep was there, but this idea that, well, Messi's great, but he's functioning in this incredible system, this well-oiled machine, this collectively brilliant team. Right now, boy, it's a lot of just give the ball to Messi and hope he can conjure something out of nothing. He's having to start and finish every attack. But fortunately for Barcelona, he's up to it, which is why they are where they are this season. Wow. Man, way to kick off a Monday on a downer of a note here, Mossy. You've you've crushed my 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 belief, everything that I have believed in for so long. This is Mestun Club, right? This is La Masia. This is the ultimate creation and structure and philosophy and style of play that now multiple generations have looked to. And yet what you're telling me, and please correct me if I'm wrong here is that it's all been a lie. It's all been BS. It's all been about the individual players. And if that is so mossy, then is it really a style of play? Is it really a philosophy? I mean, I guess you could say give it to Messi is a philosophy, but 
if you're not able to translate it and have it continue to multiple generations, then it really isn't about any way of playing or anything that has been implemented. And the ironic thing is, is that in that moment that Barcelona, as you rightly mentioned, went away from what they were and became the anti-romantic, Liverpool actually was the more romantic and maybe even argue the romantic team on the field despite the loss. I, I heard, but they played so well, Liverpool. Oh, they, 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 this isn't what they deserve. The soccer guys just didn't smile on them. I, I, if this is the case, I have so much more respect and love for Jurgen Klopp because he died on the hill that he made. He died saying, you know what? Even going up against Barcelona, when every no one would 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 look askant at us saying, we're going to change the way that we play. He said, no, we're going to keep playing the way that we play, and whatever happens, happens. Well, we know what happened. So I guess my question, more importantly, is that am I wrong in believing that, number one, it has died, and that it, whatever that it was, was not really everything that people were telling me it was. Yeah, I think the characteristic of the players dictate the style of play uh, more than we realize. So yeah, they, they happen to produce Xavi and Why is everybody telling you about style all the yeah, time? It's interesting. Just get the best players it, it, you and have. I do, think, I do think this debate is unique to Barcelona. Everybody else is malleable, and the fans can talk themselves into uh, whatever style is winning. It's only with Barcelona that we get really hung up on this stuff. And even then, it was split. There were a lot of people praising Valverde, uh, saying that he had a plan B, he showed flexibility, he came up with a smart game plan that was unique to this situation. And then there are others, the more uh, puristy types, that say, no, Messi bailed him out. And the fact that uh, Barcelona were dominated at home to such a degree is an indictment of him and that he's betraying their, their identity as a club. And it's funny how it's sort of manifested itself in the transfer market because Valverde has some say, so some signings are his, while the club makes others. And in the last couple of years, the midfielders the club has signed are Artur, Frankie de Jong. So they're looking for successors to Xavi and Iniesta and still trying to preserve a certain way of playing. While two summers ago, Valverde asked for Paulinho. Last summer, he asked for Arturo Vidal. So he's sort of going a different way with it. So it, it makes for a fascinating debate, for sure. I just think, and this happens all the time, we even heard, even domestically here, Fernando Adi, uh, from Cincinnati after they have gone on a streak of losing here actually said we need to develop an identity we need to develop an identity everybody talks about it it's this, it's this buzz, buzzword and I've been there I, I, I have talked about it before whether I was in front offices develop an identity but defining what that actually means and having it manifest I, I think it's first off it's much more difficult than people realize second off it, it it's used as a catch-all and a cover-all for a lot of things out there. Well, we, we need an identity. What's our identity? What's, what, what's Manchester? People talk about the Manchester United way. What's their identity? Well, their identity was built on winning. That's it. I've never seen a team have an identity on losing. That's our identity. We lose. But nobody loses as consistently as we do and in the same manner that we do each and every time. It's all about winning. However you win, then that's your identity. But Barcelona was, for so many years, Masi, it was, it was said to me that, no, this is the actual manifestation of what we've been talking about, where you can actually see what they are trying to do, and they will do it come hell or high water. It doesn't matter who's in there, and they have players coming through this incredible development program that are then going to take it over and continue it for year after year after year. And no, I'm, I, I feel a little disillusioned, Masi. 
it's funny to go back to Bob Bradley. He gave an interview recently in which he chastised other MLS teams for not playing the quote unquote correct way. And I know that hit you in a weird way oh, because don't even start with this me. whole notion of <laughs> style of play, you think, I mean, it's about finding whatever way wins and anything else is kind of nonsense, right? To, to harp on. I'm not saying that, that teams don't have a style of play and something that they, they are taught. But what I'm saying is that if, if that is your style of play, then it should be able to be taught to multiple generations, and you should be able to recognize that team. I always thought, if anybody, all you cool kids out there, were able, were able to take whatever team it is and take away the actual visuals of the game and just put dots where the players are. And if you were watching a game on a screen and all we saw was the actual dots moving, if you truly have a style of play, if you truly have an identity that is ingrained from start to finish, from young to old, and has historic identity, then you should be able to watch that on your screen. And as the players move, you should be able to recognize and identify it. That is the ultimate style of play. This is how we play. So much so that the names and the images of the players don't even matter. So if you're a cool guy out there, if you can come up uh, technically with something out there to be able to to put that in an app, go ahead and do that. That will be the ultimate way of judging whether your team actually plays in a style. You know, it looks like we could be headed for an Ajax-Barcelona final. And as a history buff, I would enjoy reading all the stories about the historical connections between these clubs, all the players that have played for both. But uh, you're going to get your fill of you know, style of play and Cruyff and the influence he's had on both and how there's a certain Ajax way of playing, a Barcelona way of playing. So get ready for that because that will be like the big narrative surrounding that final. Well, just go and spend a bunch of money and get the best possible players you are and then call it an identity and a style of play. One last thing yes. unrelated to this, but I, I want to get you going on this. Uh, uh, <laughs> one player who has played for both Ajax and Barcelona is Luis Suarez. Mm-hmm. And another club he played for is Liverpool. So he's facing his former club right. now in the semifinals. I know how you feel about this, but you can tell the world again. It was actually a controversy among Liverpool fans that Luis Suarez celebrated his goal in the first leg. That There's some notion out there that he did something wrong by doing that. Where is this notion? You think there's really a notion out there that people, really people are angry about this? I tell you, people in England really buy into this nonsense about not celebrating against your former team. I think it's the stupidest thing ever. I know you think it's the stupidest thing. It's the thing most ever. ridiculous thing I have ever heard. I, all I, all, but by the way, all I've, once again, I'm, I'm completely disillusioned about everything. All I've heard about is how hard the English fans are in Liverpool, and it, we, we, uh, we, you know, we, we're, we're so, uh, we have so much history and, and all that kind of stuff. And you get to get bent out of shape, and you're going to start crying and whining like a bunch of little babies because Luis Suarez celebrated a goal. He doesn't play for you anymore. What he spo- was he supposed to say? Get down and say, "I'm so sorry. I put the ball in the back of the net. I'm so sorry." And he could. Uh, th- by the time you're listening to this, you might be running or or, or wherever he ended up being. So the the games might have already happened, and Luis Suarez may have scored not only scored a goal but scored a goal in Anfield. I hope to God if Luis Suarez is the Luis Suarez that we all think he is, and as far as I'm concerned, the person that I want him to be. Oh, I hope he celebrates. I hope he does. I hope he does a damn knee slide, all right, <laughs> in front of the bench. I hope he goes over to the fans and just is, it, it just blows kisses and is pelted with the the uh, the beer and the and the uh, vitriol and the uh, spit 
and he just bathes in it because that is what Luis Suarez is. And by the way, that's what anybody should be. Yeah, I don't feel as a, as a fan of a team that when somebody doesn't celebrate that they're really honoring us. No, you paid him. He did his job. He may or may not be a legend for you. And he moved on. All players are mercenaries. It doesn't mean they don't have an affinity for the teams that they played for, but that shouldn't mean that they shouldn't celebrate, by the way, the most difficult part of our entire game, which is putting the ball on the back of the net. They shouldn't celebrate that. That's nuts. That is nuts. Grow up, Liverpool fans. <laughs> Grow up. God. Anything else, Masi? That is it. All right. Moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the uh, social media platforms. And uh, who knows? Mossy may read one of your questions as he's doing to do right now. Who do we got, Mossy? So first up, at Abner underscore Enrique uh, wants to hear Alexi's thoughts on the Leeds United Aston Villa episode. Uh, for people that didn't see it uh, in a championship match, Aston Villa had a player down on the ground. Uh, Leeds did not play the ball out of bounds. Instead, they went and scored. Aston Villa were furious. It led to a whole brouhaha. And Marcelo Bielsa, the Leeds coach, felt bad enough about it that he didn't let Aston Villa score a goal, although one of his players uh, didn't get the message because he tried to prevent them from scoring. So the whole thing was a crazy and rather humorous episode. Uh, but it's led to all sorts of discussion about sportsmanship and this whole concept of playing the ball out of bounds when a player is injured. What did you make of it? Have we talked about the uh, bat flip thing that goes on in uh, baseball? Did we talk about that? Uh, I previous? think you alluded to it in passing. Uh, all these unwritten rules. They need to actually make them written if they're really going to abide <laughs> by them. This is another ridiculous. You're riling me up today, Masi. This, th this whole thing. First off, if, if anybody has a problem with it when it comes to players, this is of their own creation. This is because so many players, and it's become systemic in the game, are either outright diving or embellishing on moments of contact and therefore using that, uh, that injury to either waste time or to plant the seed in the head of the referee uh, and to basically use it as uh, a, a, to, to try to get an advantage over their opponent. And we don't know anymore if anybody is hurt. They go, they roll uh, 10 times and they get up and they pop up. They go and they roll 10 times and they got a broken leg. We don't, we don't know anymore because it all looks the same. And why does it all look the same? Because the players, for many, many years now, and it continues on, have been, as we said, diving or embellishing. So in this moment, it, it, first off, it's not up to the players to blow the whistle. So that they played on is completely within the, the, the laws of the game. Is it an unwritten rule that you're going to pass it out? Fine, but we've, we've seen this now so many times that it shouldn't be a surprise to you if somebody doesn't pass it on. Everybody will get mad and been out of shape and, uh, and that'll, all, that'll, uh, that'll all happen. And so they went down uh, and they, score, they scored well within, well within the rules. Now, the Bielsa reaction is typical Bielsa. And we've talked about this before where you could see this type of scenario happening. Would he have done it if there was actually something on the line? That's, that's the ultimate question. Would it, if it meant promotion, if it meant money, whatever it ends up being, if there was something actually on the line, would, it, would this have been something uh, that he would have done? So while I love Bielsa, let's ease up on the St. Bielsa for, for this moment here, okay? It was fun. It was a great moment. It's just another in great moments when it comes to, to Bielsa. I think others potentially would have done that given the scenario and the circumstance, these, these specific scenario and circumstances when it comes to it. But I, I don't, 
I don't want anybody to kick it out. I don't, I don't, don't kick it out. Keep playing. Play to the whistle, the old things that they've always, they, that they've always told you. So I don't know. Did you think that it was that crazy or what? It's been an eventful season for Marcelo Bielsa between the spying <laughs> yes, and this. Yes, it uh, has. No, I think uh, there are too many gray areas. Obviously, you mentioned the time wasting and the injury fading, but also the, the score, the time of the game, where the ball is on the field. I mean, you know, if your team is down by a goal late and you have the ball near the other team's box and one of the defenders goes down, do you have to turn around then and play it out of bounds? So there's enough gray areas that make it where um, let's just have it be at the referee's discretion. Everybody gets in the habit of just playing until they hear the whistle. And to me, that's the easiest way to solve this. So I'm with you. It's amazing to see as the game progresses and as the tension ratchets, ratchets up, uh, how less benevolent the players yeah. <laughs> tend to be when these things happen. And you're right. Sometimes there's the end of games like where something is actually on the line and it's gotten to that point where you could have protruding bone and people are still playing. <laughs> people are still playing. Well, we all know that when there's a head injury, immediately the, uh, the, the play is stopped. But if it's not a head injury, then they keep playing. And once again, players, you, you want this to change? Well, then your behavior has to change. And until it does, I'm not going to know whether I'm a fan, whether I'm a commentator in the box, or whether I'm a player on the field, or by the way, whether I'm the referee, whether you're actually hurt. And you know why? Because too many of your colleagues for too long have been faking. Too many of your colleagues for too long have been, as we said, diving and embellishing. So you want to change that? Go ahead. But that's what you have to change first is the behavior of the players. Then this, this will all clean itself up. Next up, at Clinton Battles. Pro-Rel Twitter often complains about MLS's quote-unquote closed system that you have to quote-unquote buy in to join the league. But isn't that literally how every quote-unquote open system league in the world works too? That only money can take a club to the top flight? What was his name? Clinton Battles. Clinton. All right, Clinton. It's a good question. And I think the only thing that I would say that you're you're missing, and I don't want to speak for open system pro-Relers out there, but I think that they would argue, and I can certainly argue, that it doesn't allow for that potential of magic to happen in that it doesn't allow for the bad news bears. It doesn't allow for that team, the little engine that could, even against all odds and even without the money that everybody else has, of finding a way in a team situation where it's the sum of the parts, and it's not just all about having the best and the most expensive players out there. And that hope, as slim as it may be, and as little as it may be, is what the whole open system rests upon. Are you right in a sense that saying ultimately is about money? Yes, and we've talked about this, and we continue to talk about this when it comes to the leagues, and especially when it comes to the elite leagues. And there is a financial component of any team that comes up. You're going to get a whole lot more money, but you're also going to be asked to spend a whole lot of money, a uh, lot more money. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to compete with everyone. I'm not even talking about the elites. Just to compete on a mid-league, uh, a mid-table level, that jump to that first division that can be a tremendous amount from a from a from a business standpoint. Uh, if you are if you are up there, so yes, I understand what what you are saying. But a true and authentic and genuine and real type of open system will allow for anybody, no matter how big, small, rich, or poor, to have at least the possibility of being in the bigs or at least the next level. 
Wait, Clinton likes quotation marks like Elaine Bennis likes uh, exclamation points. <laughs> it's funny. When I read it with all these quotations, I kept thinking that Chris Farley bit on Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry we don't have an open <laughs> system. You have to buy in. What else? Anything else? Next question. At Hussein Daly, uh, which Premier League team would you have wished you played for? Well, thank you, Hussein. Looks to be just one question mark. So from a punctuation standpoint, much more... Uh, concise and efficient which premier league team would you have liked wished to play for now for those there are many of you that are listening that are that are very young and never had the incredible honor of seeing yours truly run around a soccer field i was not the most uh fleet of foot but while my my stature my little stature would make you believe that i was a a brute and just kicked anything that moved uh, I will tell you that I was a much more, much more of a lover of the beautiful game and keeping the ball on the floor and keeping possession than my image, I guess, would have you believe. I would have loved to have played in this age because I think that there is not just from a, an elite team standpoint, but a general standpoint, much more of an emphasis on playing out of the back, which is something that while my ability in the air was something was part and parcel of, of, of who I was as a player, I would have loved to have been encouraged and given the ability uh, and the go-ahead to be able to play out of the back more. And I know that had I been encouraged and, and had that opportunity, that I would have been able to do it. So playing for Pep at Man City, for example, and he's not the only one there, but I would have loved to have played for something in, in the EPL for someone like uh, Pep at Man City, specifically because while I love hitting a long ball and I love a beautiful long ball, the ability and the adherence to maintaining possession when you're coming out of the back and putting center backs like myself in non-traditional positions of pressure, I would have loved that. I would have loved the confidence that comes and the courage that comes with somebody telling you, no, I am going to play that 10-yard ball out of the back on that goal kick with the recognition and understanding that you're going to be put under pressure. But I believe that you're going to be able to get out of that pressure, and I'm going to give you the ability to do so. So that's that, that would be uh, someone and some team that I would love. Now, that's specific to the actual way that they that they play, and there's other teams that, that do that. As a matter of fact, a lot of teams uh, do that nowadays. It's kind of that's the cool thing to do, and I, and I like that that's the cool thing to do going forward. I would have loved to have lived in London, so playing for a London team would be awesome. That's more of an off-the-field type of uh, situation that would be cool. Alex is over there nodding his head. You should have been so lucky to have had me over there at uh, Chelsea. Anyway, anything else, Mossy? That is it. All right, that was our Ask Alexi segment. As I said, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and send us your uh, questions over there on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the different things, and we pick a few out each and every week. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our back three, some big stories and games and moments from the uh, world of soccer out there. Mossy, what do we got in our back three this week? All right, we begin in England. Uh, not much we can say about the title race because we're taping this on a Monday. Mm. Uh, City play Leicester later today. That game will determine who is ahead and in the driver's seat heading into the last round between the City and Liverpool. So uh, Liverpool did notch a big win away to Newcastle this weekend, which ensured it's going to come down to the last round. 
Uh, any overall thoughts about the title race before we move on to top four? Well, since the game is about to happen, this is good because if you are running or on your bike or in your carpool or, or whatever, you will now be able to either shake your head and, and tell us how great we are or shake your head and tell us what morons we are. So who's going to win this? Is this is this one of those trap games, banana skin type of things, uh, banana peel type of games for Man City? Or do you think they, they blazed no, the No, uh, this is actually the game I circled all along as the most dangerous one. I know a lot oh, of people thought go. Burnley, but here we go. Oh, I mean, Leicester, top half of the table well, say team. It then. Just Brendan say Rogers. it then for the people out there. This is it. They don't get three points today. They don't get three points. Wow. <laughs> they do get three points today. Uh, and they do it with a with a smoke and a coffee. It's not going to be a problem. Okay. So <laughs> one uh, of us is going to be right. So, uh, or maybe neither of us will be right. Uh, maybe just they share the points. Okay. Well, no, you said they don't get three points. You said they might. Okay. Right. Right. Which would essentially hand the title to Liverpool because Liverpool hosts Wolves the last round, and I expect that they would win that. Well, match, given so. my comments earlier in the pod about the Liverpool fans, that cannot happen. So, Pep, you need to figure out what's going on today. Uh, 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 but so, top four was okay, more yeah, or less that's settled. The most important. Uh, it was more or less settled uh, this weekend. Chelsea have clinched a top four spot. You talk about a manager coming back from the dead, Maurizio Sarri. Uh, all of a sudden, this season doesn't look so bad. And Tottenham eff- effectively clinched a top four because they have a three-point lead over Arsenal and a healthy goal difference advantage. Uh, now, Arsenal could very well still get in the Champions League by virtue of winning the Europa League. They have a foot and a half in the final. They have a 3-1 first leg lead over Valencia in the semis, and then they would face either Chelsea or Frankfurt in the final. So the one team that's been left out of the mix here is Manchester United. Uh, they are officially eliminated from top four contention. They will be in the Europa League next season. What did you make of that? I think it just highlighted the fact that the Ole Gunnar brightness, shall we say, the the sunshine, the luminous type of feel-good moment that they had was so bright that people couldn't see the reality behind it. And that's, that's, that's a little bit dramatic and poetic. People could see this is just not a team right now that is equipped to compete and to live up to what we talked about, the, the Manchester way, which we've already established, is just winning. So there's going to have to be a lot of changes this summer. And how do you make changes? Well, you spend money, either by paying folks off and moving people around and certainly by bringing others, uh, other, uh, others in. But to see the faces with the recognition not just the re- recognition from a competitive standpoint on the field that they're not going to be in the top four, but the recognition because they've always stood, even in the bad times, Manchester United has stood on the fact, yes, but look at our business. And it is a business. But this hurts the business. Not, I mean, they're still going to be one of the great brands in the world, but this certainly hurts the business. This hurts when it comes to recruiting for the product that is your business on the field going forward. And once again, that brand takes a hit. And I'll be really interested to see what Ole and company over there look like come, uh, come this fall. But it was, it, it, was, it was not enough ultimately. They made a valiant effort, but it just papered over a bunch of cracks. One thing that's irritated me, uh, Mourinho fanboys have come out of the woodwork recently and acting like he's somehow been vindicated by what's going on. A couple of thoughts on that. First off, although Sochar's results have tailed off here, actually, if you just look at the table since he took over, United would be third. So the reason they did not finish that, in the but, top but four... But that's supposing that Mourinho wouldn't have been able to do the same thing with right. the, with but, the opponents, but right? But just looking at the facts, I mean, the okay. reason they're not in the top four is because of the terrible start they 
they had under Mourinho. Also, listen, no Manchester United manager since Alex Ferguson has covered himself in glory. None of them have been able to rise above the dysfunction at the club. But, you know, uh, he was there the longest out of all of them. He had the most transfer windows, five different transfer windows to work with. He spent hundreds of millions of dollars. When people talk about the lack of leadership at United now, the player they point to is Paul Pogba. Mourinho was the one that bought him for a world record fee. He spent 90 million euros on Romelu Lukaku. He spent 50 million euros on Fred last summer. It has been about the worst signing in Premier League history. He acquired Alexis Sanchez. So, you know, he doesn't get to sort of separate himself out from and be, oh, look at what a mess this club is. I was a victim of that. You know, everybody has to take a part of the blame here on to, from United for where, how they've gone since Ferguson left and where they are today. And I, I think he's trying to do that a little bit here, and I don't, so I don't in, totally so buy So in trying it. to fix this, you just established <laughs> that they've spent all of this money on players. So in order to fix it, they should go the opposite way? Don't spend any money on players or spend very, very little relative to what you have spent, and then that'll fix it? No, because the, the answer to this is just to spend more <laughs> big money, but obviously to spend it smarter. Right, spend it smarter. All right. By the way, the solution is not to hire Roy Keane as your technical director because he went on TV and, and said a bunch of platitudes about how this club lacks leadership. And it's amazing how fans get roped into that stuff. And now there's this narrative out there, oh, they should hire Roy Keane to be their to technical yell director. everybody? Being, being a great player does not mean you're qualified to be a technical director. The, the skill sets are completely different. And there's nothing in his post-playing career that indicates that he's qualified to be the technical director at a major uh, club. Don't get me started so on it, it's, okay. I mean, it's, it's complete nonsense, <laughs> Roy Keane. <laughs> Um, all so, right. Okay. Uh, so, but but then uh, obviously, Man City, Liverpool. You said Tottenham's going to back in, and Chelsea's going to back in. Yes. That's, and then it will either be four or five. Crazy happens. Arsenal could uh, win the Europa League and then make right. it five English teams. But it's funny because uh, all the team, I guess, no longer Chelsea, but all the other teams involved in the Europa League semis are also in the thick of the top four race in their respective leagues. Frankfurt. Uh, are level on points with Leverkusen for fourth. They're ahead on goal difference. And Valencia, three points back of Getafe in Spain with two rounds to play. So it's kind of neat that you have sort of uh, parallel tracks here and all these teams sort of Arsenal, Valencia, and Frankfurt having to sort of, you know, they get two cracks at it. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Uh, but I mentioned Frankfurt. That segues nicely to Germany. Yep. Uh, big developments in the title race this weekend. Bayern beat Hanover. And uh, Dortmund squandered a 2-0 second-half lead over Bremen. They tied 2-2. So Bayern now with a four-point lead with two rounds to play. Um, let's uh, focus on the positive for Dortmund first. Marco Royce was suspended, so Christian Pulisic got a rare start, scored a fantastic goal in the opening minutes, and I thought went on to have a terrific all-around performance. So it definitely wasn't his fault. They frankly wasted a great Pulisic performance. But uh, he kind of reinvigorated his brand. That was nice to see. Huh? It was great. It was great to see, and it was... It was, I don't know if it's classic because he's still very young, but this is what we've come to desire and expect based on a, a pretty small sample size still because he's so he's so young. But to see him get that ball, beat multiple players, put it through the legs of the defender, and then have that, that burst of speed and then the composure ultimately to finish the goal – that's what you want to see if you're an American soccer fan, uh, because we look at it in terms of the national team. That's what you want to see in the moment if you're a Borussia Dortmund fan. But that's also what you want to see if you're a Chelsea fan for the savior that's coming in, as we know, starting uh, starting this fall with that big uh, with that big transfer. We haven't seen that enough, and we've talked before about the fact that he has a problem when it comes to being injured and being injured. Uh, a lot, which kills that type of consistency that you want. But it was nice, if for only a brief shining moment, to see the Christian Pulisic 
that we all want him to be on a consistent basis. As you said, from a race to the title perspective, it was it was wasted, and that was a big, big waste. Because it's not that they can't get one point and tie teams, but the way in which they capitulated was devastating. And I just think that ultimately this Borussia Dortmund team is not from man to man as good as Bayern Munich. And I think just has doesn't have the psychological fortitude and health to see this one out. Now, coming down the stretch here with these last two games, Bayern has a harder, what do they call it, run-in? Yep. With uh, third place Leipzig this weekend and then the final game against fourth place Eintracht as opposed to Dortmund playing 10th place Fortuna and 6th place Gladbach. But I just, I just don't see that they finish it out. I think that Bayern Munich wins this once again. Dortmund have had this mental fragility the last few years that's prevented them from challenging Bayern. They made some strides in that regard this season, bringing in an old wily coach like Lucien Favre, signing Witzel and Delaney. Roy stayed healthy, so I, I do feel like this team had more of a backbone than some of the more recent ones, but it still wasn't enough. That mental fragility still reared its ugly head enough times uh, to cost them. And, you know, it's too much with Dortmund about tacking on that extra goal. I mean, that game against Hoffenheim where they had a 3-0 lead in the second half, after they went up 3-0, they had a couple of chances to make it 4. Jaden Sancho hit the post. Then Hoffenheim come back. It ends 3-3. After the game, Mario Götze is getting interviewed, and he says, man, we should have gotten that fourth to put it away. And I'm thinking, if that's if you think that's the issue, then that's the issue right there. Because the, the idea that you have this mentality where we always have to tack on goals to account for the fact that we can't properly see out a game. And you, and you saw that again this weekend. They had a 2-0 lead over Bremen. Akanji missed an incredible chance to make it 3-0. In the second half, Alcacer had a goal correctly ruled out for offsides. And minutes later, he has a point-blank header that the goalkeeper saves. And because we know Dortmund, we're all thinking, oh, they needed to have gotten that third goal. It's going to cost them. But it shouldn't be that way. It's still a 2-0 lead in the second half against an inferior team. And, you know, if it was any other the big club, it would be like, okay, it would have been nice to get that third goal to relieve yourself of any stress, but you're still going to figure out a way to see this out and get the three points. But Dortmund don't. They screw up those situations. It's maddening. Do you think they care? When it really comes down to it, when they're at their postseason party, and I'm saying they, I mean everybody, including the hierarchy and the business folks there, because this we know is a machine when it comes to that business of buying low and selling high, uh, historically. And that they were challenging Bayern and that they are still challenging Bayern with two weeks left, that's great. But isn't that just gravy for a team like Borussia Dortmund? Or do you think that they really will feel that they let something get away? I think they'll feel like they let something really? get away. Yeah, I think generally speaking, you're right. Uh, they recognize that Bayern is at a level of a club that you know all they can hope for is to sort of challenge them. But every now and then, the stars align where there's a title there to be won, and you'd like to be able sure. to capitalize on that. And this was it. I mean, I think they feel like they they gave the title away this season. All right, what else? All right, we'll end on this. We are roughly one month away from the 2019 Women's World Cup, oh, and yes. the defending champions, the United States, have named their 23-player roster. I know you have it in front of you. You want to go through it and give your thoughts? Yeah, we don't have to go through every single name, but here, here, here are the headlines. I think that Jill Ellis, the U.S. Women's National Team coach and the defending coach when it comes to the World Cup, having won in 2015, she went with what she knows, and she went with experience. And so whether it was an Ali Krieger who's been last couple of years out in the wilderness, but we know won the World Cup in 2015 and understands what it takes to win a World Cup coming in as a defender, or whether it's a Morgan Bryan 
who has also kind of been in and out of form and of late been out of form, but was a catalyst and a really, really important part of the 2015 uh, World Cup. These are decisions where it's amazing because people ask me about the, the 1998 Men's World Cup team and, and Steve Sampson, who, who this is almost the, the, the anti-Steve Sampson approach in that she's, she's dancing with the ones that, that brung her in that the ones that, that brung her the World Cup in 2015. And while there are certainly some younger players and players that could have made this team, they lacked the experience. And therefore, if you are a coach like Jill Ellis, you want to be damn sure when it gets down to it. I'm not talking about the group stage. When it gets down to the real nitty gritty, that you have people that you can rely on that can get in there and aren't going to be phased by the moment. And she will rely on it because we have history that has shown us that things will happen. Yellow cards will happen. Injuries will happen. And the depth of your team is important. And to the extent that you can have that depth be populated by players that have been there, done that, I think that's what Jill Ellis did. She will come into criticism if there are problems from a defensive standpoint. Why did you decide to bring Ali Krieger? You know, if Kelly O'Hara isn't doing this and Ali Krieger gets in and isn't good or something like that. But that's, that's, that's to be expected. I think, I think you set yourself up for more criticism when you bring young, inexperienced types of players. It's, it requires more faith. It requires more courage to do something like that. And I think she just went with the tried and true, the players that she knows, the players that most importantly that she can trust because they've been there. And then let the chips fall where they may. Not a whole lot of surprises when it comes to the actual team. It's the same type of 11, I think, that is going to start, that has been starting. But it's going to be very, very interesting as they go through it because, well, they always have a target on their back. But they are going with, as I said, uh, and I've said many times, I think the most talented collection of players. But they are also going into a World Cup in 2019 this summer in France where it is also the most competitive World Cup. It's not just about one through four. It's about one through 10, one through 15, where things can happen. And I do believe things will happen. From a U.S. perspective, you don't want things to happen. You want to happen what everybody would predict looking at it from the outside, and that is the U.S. is the best team in the world with the best players, uh, defending World Cup champions, and they go and win another World Cup. We'll see if that happens with this 23 players that Jill Ellis has named. Anything else? Nope, that's it. All right, so we come to the end of yet another podcast. I want to thank you for listening. And at the end of each and every podcast, we do our one big thing. And I'm just going to circle back around to what we talked about at the very beginning about the vernacular and the jargon that we use to describe our game. And I will reiterate that I really don't care what people call it. It is the game that we know. It is the game that we love. It is the beautiful game. It is, by, is called by so many different names. But the barrier, as I said before, that has existed and unfortunately continues to exist by the words that we use to describe our game. In a sense, I hold it dear, these words. In a sense, they are that proverbial chip on my shoulder that I will not give up without a fight. I recognize that that would be easy to do. I recognize that to capitulate and to conform and to call it what the majority call it would be easier and would move that barrier 
away. Whether it will be completely gone, I don't know, but it would make it that much easier. But I don't want to do something that's easier. I don't want to be shamed into giving that up. I want to make sure that the, and I know I get accused at times of being too American, too red, white, and blue, American exceptionalism, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe. Guilty. I do take it seriously. I do take great pride in the American soccer history that we have, as strange and unique and different and quirky as it may be. And whether it's the way that we have done things on the field, whether it's the way that, things, that we've done things off the field, whether it's the way that we talk about the game and the words that we use, it is personal. It is part of my history. And guess what? If you are a part of the American soccer culture, whether you call it football or soccer, it's still part of your history. And uh, the way that we talk about it should not be a barrier to whether you take somebody seriously or whether you believe that they are saying things that are um, that you should take note of or whether they are authentic or whether they are genuine or whether they are truthful and th that too often we accuse people of being inauthentic and posers and all the different words that we used simply because they call it soccer or they call it a field or they say zero or they call it a tie or they say cleats or any of these words that we use so with that Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will be back again next week. And I want to tell you about something very, very special that we have that will be out this week. It's a standalone little short 15, 20-minute pod with an interview with one of the greats, I think, uh, and certainly one of the greats when it comes to this summer with the U.S. Women's National Team. That will be Crystal Dunn, the defender slash midfielder slash forward. She's played a lot of positions, and he plays a lot of well. And I was privileged to be able to talk to her for a few minutes about what's going to happen this summer, and her role with the national team uh, going forward. So look for that as a special standalone uh, State of the Union pod. Mossy, anything before we go? Nope. All right. Thanks for listening again. We will be back next week with another episode of the State of the Union. And until then, size the day.